Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you doing today? Doing very well, David. How are you? Good. You have been traveling. Welcome back from... Bermuda? Bermuda, yeah, I just got back uh, Sunday. For Thank work, you. we should clarify, for work. For work, yes, we'll get to that in a little while. Yes, we will talk about that shortly. Also joining us this week, a frequent guest on the podcast, Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering the technology industry. Lauren, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And Sammy Main, a staff writer covering the digital media world. Sammy, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. I'm real excited to be here. All right, this week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about our annual digital hot list, where we look at the hottest names in digital brands, influencers, uh, and kind of all across apps, everything across the digital world. Uh, we're going to be looking at the news coming out this week. We're going to have Tim tell us a little bit about uh, the award judging he just came back from and some of the top global creatives that he got to talk to while he was out there. Uh, and we're going to... Uh, talk about, of course, the ads worth watching, where Tim gathers up the finest of ads each week, and we uh, find out which ones are really worth your time. But first, the news. So this might not come as too much of a surprise to a lot of people who work in the ad agency world or the agency world in general, whether it's PR or uh social media or whatever kind of agency you might work for, the work-life balance of the agency world is more imbalanced than ever, it seems, these days. We've had several very dark stories uh, coming out of the agency world in the last few years, most notably uh, out of uh, Japan, where the CEO of Dentsu, the agency holding company, resigned at the beginning of this year. It was announced in December of last year after the a 24-year-old account manager committed suicide uh, after spending more than 100 hours of overtime in a month. Uh, and that was seen as a direct uh, connection to the reason she committed suicide. That launched an investigation uh, into the agency, and the CEO uh, resigned uh, the day that the investigation was announced. 
We also had in the uh, Ogilvy, Philippines, an employee had died of pneumonia in February. Uh, initially, a lot of people were saying that that was due to overwork. The agency has since come out and said that he had only worked an eight-hour day before being hospitalized with pneumonia uh, and passing away tragically. But those stories have uh, really sparked a lot of debate in the industry. We, on our agency spy blog, we asked people in the agency world to share some of their stories anonymously or uh, not, depending on how they felt like it. And uh, this week, we published uh, a lot of the stories people sent us. I wanted to share some of those. Uh, one person said, I worked 36 days straight until 3 a.m. And that was a biz dev, uh, you know, a new business leader at an agency. Uh, this person said, my husband didn't tell me that my two-year-old had a 105-degree fever because he knew that I w had to be at work on Saturday. Uh, another copywriter said that his creative director spent so little time at home that he resorted to making videos of himself so that his young children wouldn't go too long without seeing him. Uh, that's something where I can personally attest. I've known several creatives who have had to do very similar things so that their kids actually remember what they look like. Uh, and a, uh, another agency uh, veteran uh, claimed to have worked up to 90 hours in a week and said, my boss uh, let me go home to sleep at 2 p.m. on the Friday that the project was supposedly done, only to wake me up at 10 p.m. asking me to come back into the office. Uh, that person then took a week-long vacation and then quit the day that they came back. Uh, so I guess that one has a happy ending. Agencies are trying to respond to this in our story that Patrick Coffey wrote this week. Uh, in the print edition of Adweek, he talked about how agencies such as uh, New York City's Ready, Set, Rocket created a four-week sabbatical uh, for employees who've been there three or more years uh, so that you can, I guess, take a big chunk of time. But I don't know if that really solves the bigger issue of just this kind of idea of can you just work at an agency job? Tim, you talk to a lot of agency creatives throughout the year. Is this a, a recurring theme you hear, uh, especially it feels like it hits creatives hardest a lot of the times? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it hits a lot of people at the agency pretty hard. Um, I think the biggest issue is that long hours in advertising are, are just seen as normal, nothing out of the ordinary, kind of just what you have to do if you're in this business. Um, you know, my, my wife for many years worked in an agency. I saw for a time, you know, what she was going through. And, you know, young people are definitely put through the grinder at agencies. I've never worked in an agency, so I don't have, you know, firsthand experience with that kind of thing. Um, but you definitely hear the horror stories. I mean, the stuff that you just rattled off there. I mean, that, that is, uh, those are bizarre stories. I mean, 90 hours a week is absurd. 36 days straight until after midnight. I mean, it's almost like hard to believe. And then you mentioned uh, Ready, Set, Rockets sabbatical, like a four-week sabbatical. I mean, in a, in a weird way, that's almost admitting that you can't solve this problem day-to-day. -day. You have to, like, just take a giant chunk of time off because you've been killing yourself for so long. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was at, uh, I was at this ad judging this, this weekend, and, and uh, DDB is going uh, – they're putting the finishing touches on a pretty big McDonald's campaign. And, you know, there was a, several senior uh, DDB people uh, there and they were constantly on the phone like all weekend long and, and late into the night. And you know that their their staffs are also doing that. And I think it just, you know, it just seems to be par for the course. Um, it's particularly, sounds like it's particularly bad in Asia. Uh, we've had several stories come out of there, which with tragic consequences of overwork. And uh, while it may not be as bad in the U.S., it's definitely a, a problem. And it's one that... You know, you might see agencies here and there trying to take a stab at fixing, but by and large, it just seems like the culture, and it's very difficult to change the culture. Yeah, I think it feels like you end up celebrating the kind of people who are willing to put in those hours. They're the ones who get, 
you know, kind of lauded by the company and, and it becomes the standard, you know, that it, whether it's official or not, that gets seen as kind of the bar to which other employees are expected to, to meet. Lauren, you cover the startup and, and tech world where I feel like this kind of overwork is also uh, pretty common. Do, do you feel like from what you've heard that the similar problems that are facing young uh, creatives, young agency folks is also true of those kind of putting in these types of jobs at uh, startups in the tech world? Totally. I mean, I think that's what a lot of um, <clears throat> tech companies have kind of been known for. If if you're regardless of age, you look at, you know, I'm not sure how entirely uh, true shows like Silicon Valley really are, but at least there's this there's this um, perception that people just, you know, work around the, around the clock and uh, you do what you need to do to get something done. Yeah. And if you uh, if you say no, also you're you get isolated and uh, mm -hmm. you know, there is work to be done. And so I think, you know, agencies are resistant to change because the, the work has to get done and they want to do it with the fewest people they can. And uh, but it strikes everybody like but particularly, I think, uh, junior level, which, you know, they have to be there all the time and they really have no no sway or, or no way to, to object to it. Yeah, I think you end up with a stigma for whether it's real or just perceived on uh, parents, you know, on first time parents, especially is that they feel like they may have been willing to work these hours up till now, but then suddenly between daycare and just the reality of life, you know, it's not to say that they should get a pass on working long hours, but the reality is that logistically your life becomes and your schedule becomes much more complex when you have a living creature that you have to go pick up by specific times and pay people a lot of money to take care of. And I, I've heard several people say that they feel um, kind of targeted or, or kind of dismissed uh, in their company uh, w when they're pregnant or when they, you know, when they have a kid. And so, you know, it's something where, again, it's it's just so normalized. Uh, so this isn't, uh, we put this in the news section just because it has been a recurring topic so much, but it's something that I know is a, a big point of discussion around the agency world. That said, I was tweeting with a, uh, a creative director about this, and we were kind of going back and forth where I was saying, on the one hand, the hours are very long, but on the other hand, the job is not physically demanding. We're not working third shift at a sewer plant, you know. So sometimes it helps to have a little bit of perspective on that. And then uh, a guy that I know who runs a dairy farm uh, responded to two of us and said on Twitter and said, uh, I just want to say this thread is hilarious. <laughs> 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 that guy gets up at like 5 a.m., 4 a.m. every single day and works, you know, 14 hours milking cows and hauling stuff around. <laughs> so it is one of those sometimes good to, to have a little snowflakes. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we uh, had another really interesting news story, I believe, also in the print edition this week, is that late night shows that are kind of making fun of uh, Donald Trump that are, are critical of him uh, are doing very well in viewership. They're having a real surge, most notably the late show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, this was a show that had a bit of a rough uh, launch uh, transitioning out of uh, Comedy Central, but uh, has been doing very well. He's been number one in late night for the last, uh, I believe when our story came out, it was six consecutive weeks. It's now officially seven consecutive weeks. Uh, that Colbert's been number one. Uh, Samantha B is doing incredibly well with Full Frontal. Uh, it's the number one late night show among adults 18 to 34, which is obviously a very uh, coveted demo. And her ratings among 18 to 49 viewers has doubled uh, over the past year. This seems to mirror uh, what we're seeing out of the news world, too, with uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, a lot of these publications that are taking on Trump. Uh, I, I guess I'm curious, Lauren, do you think that this is going to... Uh, have an impact in terms of uh, it seems like it will encourage 
other late night shows that maybe have tried to be apolitical, if they see success in this, do you think they're going to start changing up their content and their humor to be a little more anti-Trump? Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to um, it's hard to be apolitical right now, just because everything is is so political that you know people watch these shows and you know they watch them all this Trump coverage thinking like it's not just me right this is crazy like it's not just me right and so they watch these shows to kind of like reconfirm that thought uh and we you know we obviously see it with brands too like it's just very hard to not have some kind of political opinion these days and have that manifest uh in some way through media I found it interesting uh a month or two ago when the South Park guys said that they weren't going to do any Trump humor uh for their upcoming season because their their argument being that, that, that this administration is already a parody of itself, so how can you parody a parody? <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of funny, but then but then I think it's kind of a missed opportunity for them. I, mean, I, th- I think people are craving comedic relief from you know the, the folks that uh, are having a difficult time with with the new administration. They do you know I mean John Oliver you know I watch that every week. It's kind of you know it, it's it's cathartic in a way to um, have the concerns kind of raised in a funny way and. Um, you know, there was that interview with Letterman recently, uh, obviously he's been retired for a few years. Um, yeah, he basically came out and said like he would be doing Trump stuff and, 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 uh, you know, a lot of the, every, every day it seems like there's, um, you know, some late night show uh, has done a, a pretty great bit that gets passed around. It's always about Trump. It's always about the political season. So it, it, things aren't changing uh, anytime soon. And I think the comedians that are addressing it and, and having fun with it are, are, are clearly doing well. And it's not late night, but it didn't didn't Veep come out and say something that they're not going to poke fun at? Um, they're not going to try to tackle this administration for various reasons because the show is supposed to be so you know, fictional. Yeah, we'll have to go back and double check that. But I yeah, so yeah. their thing, I mean, partly is because that takes place in an alternate reality and always has, mm-hmm. you know, that, that she, it's not a real presidency. It's not a real timeline. Um, and so that's a, a tough balance they've always had to walk. Uh, but they've also been pretty active on Twitter. You know, a guy who plays Jonah on the show, um, you know, someone said that this guy in Trump's administration was like a real life Jonah from Veep. And he came out and said, no, we would never be as ridiculous on the show as this real administration <laughs> is, which is, is kind of funny in its own way. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see if Colbert is able to continue. I mean, it has been a world-class, uh, turnaround that, that his ratings have made. And, uh, you know, I, I think we all admire, uh, Colbert's intelligence and his insightfulness. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he continues to build on that. Uh, moving on to, uh, again, kind of maybe a, a weird place to put it in news, but I want to make sure that we got to talk to Tim. You have been in Bermuda for the last few days talking to a lot of creatives. Uh, tell us you were at, uh, I believe now it's all one thing, right? The ADC, the, the uh, Art Directors Club, and the One Show are now combined? Uh, well, so it's actually still two separate shows. The, the One Club and the Art Directors Club last fall did merge. Uh, but they're still they still have the one show separate from um, the ADC awards. So they they were judging actually two shows. This is the first time they'd had judging for both shows concurrently in the same place. And uh, they're trying to keep the shows separate um, thematically. You know, the one show is really about the big idea, kind of celebrating um, great overall campaign ideas. The ADC is very much about craft. You know, it, it's legacy, and and this is a, a 96 year old show, so. Um, its legacy, as the name implies, is really about art direction 
um, craft design. It celebrates those things. It has it has an advertising category, but it really focuses in on on the quality of execution, uh, not not necessarily um, the idea as much as the one show. But um, obviously, each jury is different, and they. Uh, you know, the people that are, that come together on each jury kind of decide for themselves kind of exactly what they want to, what kind of message they want to send. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see this organization now managing both shows and, 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 uh, it's, it's important, you know, cause the, the one club really does need the shows to remain st- uh, strong and distinct from each other. Um, so I spoke to a ton of people down there. There was, you know, dozens of jurors. One, one of the first guys I spoke to was Matt Eastwood, who's the global chief creative officer at J. Walter Thompson. And he was a film juror um, uh, on the one show side this year. And so I talked to him a little bit about trends in film. Uh, he had a lot to say about that, uh, judging by what he saw in the show. I have a little clip to play here. So this is Matt um, talking a little bit about where he thinks the trend in film is headed now. Film is, uh, it's always been great, but there are definite trends. Like people aren't doing humor as much now as they used to. There's a lot of serious stuff and particularly out of the United States I think sort of on the on the backdrop of everything that's happening in the politics there's a lot of kind of fairly heavy political statements being made and uh, you know if you sort of think back to uh, 10 years ago and you know there was a lot of funny stuff being made and I think it's interesting those are now the real surprises that come along whereas I think at one point everything had to be funny you know so I think we've seen a lot of what he's talking about there, you know, the rise of more serious-minded commercials uh, with comedy, you know, maybe receding a bit, uh, at least among work that's entered into the award shows. Uh, you know, really big, high-profile film a lot of times now is is pretty serious, and it's, you know, particularly we're talking about politics. I, I th- he, he obviously credits politics with a lot of that, that comedy, you know, used to be big a decade ago and maybe less so now. So that was kind of interesting. I uh, also spoke to Myra Nussbaum, who was on Adweek's Creative 100 list back when we did it for the first time in 2015. Uh, she was at FCB then. She recently took a job uh, at DDB Chicago. She's a group creative director there. And she was judging uh, print and outdoor for the one show this year. So uh, she had a pretty interesting perspective on advertising that, that aims to do good in the world. You know, we've seen so many nonprofits do uh, award-winning work, you know, over the past few years, stuff that gets really recognized highly at these shows. Um, but here's Myra talking a little bit about how um, advertising for good causes might be changing a little bit. I think that people are finding really, really clever ways to do, um, do advertising for good, which I like. It's not through nonprofit. Like a lot of agencies are like, oh, let's get a nonprofit and then we can make some award winning work. I think agencies are realizing our clients want to do award-winning work that's that's giving back, you know. So let's just sell this in with big brands um, doing good things. So that's kind of a cool idea that that maybe big brands uh, want to give back now, and it's not, um, you know, they're not just leaving it to the nonprofits uh, to make this this kind of work. Uh, also spoke to John Meskel uh, down in Bermuda. He's the global ECD over at McCann. Uh, he was also judging film for the one, one show, so he and Matt were on the jury together. Uh, everybody knows John as the guy who made you know, one of the most celebrated and awarded pieces of advertising ever, which was the Dumb Ways to Die video. He was sort of the brains behind that, and uh, he did that down at McCann Melbourne, and the success of that you know, allowed him to take this global role at McCann, which he's been doing for a few years, and he's always great to talk to, super funny guy and, and very smart. Uh, but the thing I wanted to talk to him about, of course, was the Fearless Girl, which is the statue that McCann created for State Street, uh, which really broke through 
you know, really passed the world of advertising and kind of became a cultural moment in New York City and, and, and elsewhere as people saw it online. Uh, so that was kind of a, in a different way, of course, but that was in, in some ways kind of like Dumb Ways to Die in the sense that it really became sort of a, a big cultural thing. Um, so I asked John uh, what it was like every once in a while to have a piece of work become so popular like Dumb Ways to Die and now Fearless Girl. Fearless Girl. And uh, this is what he told me. You know, I think there's no greater sense of, of, um, of validation of the career choice you made when you can put something out there that just, re you know, just people love and respond to in the right way. And you can see it doing, whether it's, sometimes it's doing good, but you can see it making a difference in the world. You know, you look at, at, at what the Fearless Girl is doing now and, 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 you know, when you see that, you know, the, 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 you know, the mums bringing and dads bringing their little girls next to the statue and posing with it in exactly the way we imagine people might, you think, oh, it's so cool. You know, it just, it's great to be outside of that ad bubble, you know. So that was pretty cool. I mean, I feel like the women who made Fearless Girl over at McCann, uh, was a creative team, a young uh, female creative team, Tally Gumbiner and Lizzie Wilson, I feel like they're going to have a very similar week uh, at Cannes this summer uh, as John had when, when Dumb Ways to Die came out in 2013. It's probably going to be a little bit mental of a week for them. Uh, so it was good to catch up with John. And then the last person I wanted to mention briefly um, was this guy, Adele Rodriguez. He's a, a Cuban-born illustrator. And he was in Bermuda to judge the design competition for the ADC Awards. Uh, you probably don't know Adele's name, but you definitely know his work. He's the guy that illustrated the two Time magazine covers last year with the images of Trump's face melting. And the headline on the first one was Meltdown, and the other one said Total Meltdown. And he got a lot of press for those. But then uh, last month, he kind of upped the ante by designing a cover for Germany's Der Spiegel magazine that showed Trump beheading the Statue of Liberty. I'm sure you guys saw that. I think... One of our blogs did uh, did a pretty cool story on that. Um, really incendiary image. It's a very subtle metaphor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I sat down with Adele and and, uh, and spoke to him about all those covers. And, and we actually have a whole video um, with him posted to adweek.com right now. So you can you can see that whole thing. I just have a, I'd like to play a brief clip here of him talking about Trump's travel ban and, and how he considered that uh, in a way a form of terrorism. And that's how he, that's kind of what led him to this idea for for this gruesome image for the Der Spiegel cover. You know, terrorism can be defined in many ways, but to me it's when you terrorize somebody, when you make their life miserable. So I felt it was kind of a, a form of terrorism, and in my head it all kind of got um, combined, and uh, this idea that, that, that he was terrorizing democracy or terrorizing the idea of what, um, what the Statue of Liberty symbolizes popped into my head, and I went ahead and made the image. So he was a really interesting guy, and it was good to catch up with him. And then, you know, the whole the whole judging process is also pretty interesting to see. I got to sit in on the final discussions for many of the juries where they, you know, they, they spend so many days just looking at the work and kind of just grading it on their iPads. And then uh, the last day that they're together, they, they this is how the one show does it. They, they limit discussion till the very end, and then they let everybody um, see where the work has fallen in terms of the voting. And they get to debate and make a case for things that uh, they think are deserving if they didn't feel like they landed in the right spot. So it's a pretty fascinating process. And, and like I said, the you know every jury is different, and it's pretty wild to to be in the room as they decide the big winners. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for sharing uh, those those clips and some of your interviews. And definitely encourage everybody to check out adweek.com. If you click on the creativity section, you'll find a lot of uh, Tim's coverage uh, from that. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, interesting perspectives. And it's always nice to have so many kind of big creative leaders in one place. 
Uh, speaking of uh, creative brilliance, it's time for my favorite part of the show each week, ads worth watching. Tim, you've got an interesting array of stuff this week, so uh, tell us what you want to hit up first. I do. You know, every week it seems like CPMB is getting an ad on this list, and their latest effort for Domino's is is um, one of the ones I'm going to feature this week. It's an homage to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it's not the first advertising homage to the 1986 teen drama. I'm sure you guys remember the Honda commercial back in the, I think it was the 2012 Super Bowl, where RPA got Matthew Broderick to actually bring back the Ferris character. So this time is a little different. It's Joe Keery, the, the actor who's on Stranger Things. Uh, he kind of takes the Ferris role. And they, and, uh, they did a two-minute spot that recreates the famous scene um, from the end of Ferris Bueller where Ferris is running home and he's trying to beat his parents home after you know, playing hooky for the whole day. And the conceit here is that um, Joe has ordered a pizza and he's, he's got the Domino's Tracker app on his watch and he sees that the pizza's en route and so he's rushing home. And they, they kind of did it. Um, shot for shot almost with uh, with the original. It's pretty cool. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there is a cameo from someone other than Matthew Broderick in, in this one. And uh, that was pretty cool. And then there's also a second ad. So the, the longer ad is, I think, two minutes. And then there's a 30-second spot, too, that recreates another part of the movie to sh- kind of show all the different ways um, you can order Domino's digitally from your home, whether it's the, the Echo or a watch or a you know, a, sm- a smartphone or whatever it might be. So I thought it was a fun spot. Um, I-, I guess Ferris Bueller's Day Off is still a cultural touch point. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if mill- millennials really know that movie. Yeah, it's like um, Breakfast Club, right? Like it's just transcended its original audience. It is, but you know, um, I remember Rebecca Cullors telling us that um, every- everyone in her generation did not know or care about Breakfast Club. So uh, sometimes I wonder if it's, sometimes I wonder if it's like Gen X, you know, creative directors who kind of want to bring back this stuff and and maybe the audience doesn't really know what the heck's going on although i assume ferris bueller still has some cultural cachet lauren i'll let you speak for all millennials today well actually (laughs) i I have a question (laughs) before we get into that what is ferris bueller (laughs) what is ferris bueller uh no actually i noticed in tim's write-up that this is there's some kind of connection to paramount with this spot right yeah, I think Paramount. Yeah. I believe Paramount. Yeah, owns the rights to the movie still. Or, or well, I was. That makes sense. I I was wondering if there's also some kind of like cross promotional tie with Audi because there's this there's this image of him um, like running down the street and all you see for a few seconds is just the headlights of an Audi car and it's very clear that it's an Audi, not a Ford, yeah. not any other type of car. So I was I just saw that and thought, is there some kind of weird like cross-promotional thing that subliminal like some kind of subliminal branding that i'm not supposed to pick up on yeah that's that I that's do. yeah that's probably an ad <laughs> inside the ad mm-hmm. <laughs> well you'd figure cpmb would insert an infinity car rather than a rather than yeah a, get that client Audi. connection uh, and i don't I, I don't know of any connection though i feel like i should Audi. uh help people out uh that this actor is uh steve harrington from stranger things if you can't quite picture him he was the at first, kind of douchey, somewhat love interest, uh, and uh, yeah, like I actually really liked that character because he just looks so punchably obnoxious at the beginning, and you eventually grudgingly gl- grow to like him. So it was nice seeing him in something where he was a little more charming out of the gate. I don't think you can get more charming and uh, you know in that way than uh, than Ferris Bueller. Uh, let's play a little bit of one of the clips where he is reenacting, I believe, the opening monologue uh, from Matthew Broderick. And he's obviously reinterpreting with a pizza focus. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of that. 
How could I possibly be expected to go without dominoes on a day like this? Alexa, ask Domino's to place my easy order. Ordering Domino's. Life moves pretty fast. If you can't track your pizza, you could miss it. All right, yeah, good stuff. You're right. Uh, Crispin Porter, uh, or as they were previously known, now CPB, uh, is uh, definitely been popping up a lot, so congrats to them on so much good work lately. And Domino's is uh, really crushing it. Totally. Um, Domino's is like an e-commerce company now, essentially. They're mm-hmm. like, uh, everything is to do with their di- with their digital delivery system. Um, well, cool. The next thing I wanted to mention briefly, and uh, this came out actually in the fall, but it, we know we sort of noticed it lately because they've um, it's been getting uh, the case study video has been kind of making the rounds. But it's a campaign for a Dallas bookstore called The Wild Detectives, and they did a campaign on Facebook called Litbait, uh, which is kind of a play on clickbait. And so what they did was they posted links to what looked like um, sensationalized stories uh, that had really clickbaity headlines. Um, but actually, the, the, the headlines actually um, corresponded to the plots of classic novels. So, for example, one post showed a house um, totally ruined by a storm. And the headline was, you'll never guess what happened to this Kansas teen after a tornado destroyed her home. And so um, these posts would appear on Facebook and, and people would click on them and it would take uh, the link would go to the bookstore and a listing for the book. In this case, of course, Wizard of Oz. So pretty clever idea, and you know some of the some of the headlines were pretty hilarious. One said, "Teenage girl tricked boyfriend into killing himself," which of course was Romeo and Juliet. Uh, British guy dies after selfie gone wrong, which was the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, when it's okay to slut shame single mothers, which was for the Scarlet Letter, and then uh, <laughs> finally, uh, this Italian politician makes Trump look like a saint, which was uh, a click through to uh, the Prince Machiavelli. So it got a pretty funny reaction. Every, we posted uh, the case study on, on AdFreak, and everybody really loved it. And I thought it was a pretty nice way to kind of um, misdirect people. You know, if, uh, it's obviously clickbait. Everybody hates clickbait, but this was kind of for a good cause a little bit, even if it was a little deceptive. I, I, I cracked up this Sunday. The New York Times crossword puzzle theme was spoiler alert, and, it, and the long answers actually were spoilers. <laughs> Of real, of real things. They were all pretty old, so it'd be like Rosebud ends up being the name of a sled. But there <laughs> right. was one it like spoils maybe the biggest twist in Harry Potter. And my wife has not actually read all the books, and she was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I was like, thanks, <laughs> nice. Will Shorts. <laughs> Ouch. I was That's just a little fine. sad they didn't do a uh, uh, lit bait for um, Jude the Obscure. Have any of you read that? No, I have not. I guess it's too obscure. It's Thomas Hardy. Anyway, it's you got you should have uh, you would appreciate a Moby Dick one, I assume. Yeah, you're what, right. What would I, the Moby Dick? What would the Moby Dick headline say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it's you on like, the spot. You'll never you'll <laughs> never believe what happened when this man decided to spend six months on the ocean. I don't know. That was <laughs> terrible. No, I don't know. I should come up with a good one. Something about yes, floating on a coffin or, for next week. I mean, he ends up like having to, Ishmael has to sleep in a room with a strange man, and then they, they, there's a bromance there. You could probably build a good, a good uh, clickbait thing around it, but I bet you could. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks uh, for that one. And what else? Uh, so finally, I just wanted to briefly mention um, the Chevrolet parody ads that have been out. Uh, it's actually they've been made by this these two guys, uh, Ali. Sherry Ari and Dave Irwin. So these, these two guys who do comedy 
uh, as a group called Zebra Corner. And, and these two guys really, really like to make fun of the Chevrolet Real People commercials. Uh, I know, David, you're not a huge fan of those commercials. I actually <laughs> thought they, I thought they started out pretty well a year or two ago, uh, but they've gotten really, really insipid and weird. Um, you know, every spot now is devoted to how many awards Chevrolet cars get, and and the 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 real people don't really seem like real people anymore because they're so fawning over the vehicles, and it almost seems like they're actors. So the whole thing has kind of taken a weird left turn. Um, but anyway, the, the, these two guys, they use a green screen to insert. Uh, it's it's Dave is the one guy who appears in the, in the commercials. So they use a green screen to actually insert him into the ads. And he plays this um, kind of Boston guy named Mark. And, Mark. Mark. And he sits there and he just proceeds to make fun of everyone around him. And, and it, it's kind of obscene and obnoxious, the kind of stuff he says. And so I guess it was last week, um, the most recent one of these ads came out, and um, our writer, Dave Janitazio, actually spoke with Ali and Dave uh, about the parodies. So we have that whole Q&A um, over, at, uh, over at Adweek. I mean, it was a pretty, it's a pretty fun way to uh, make fun of a campaign like this, which was also, by the way, done by McCann. So um, not quite up to the standards of Dumb Wasted Eye or Fearless Girl, I guess, lately, the, uh, the Chevy ads. Yeah, it's like a distant third. <laughs> My favorite one was the one where they take um, the fo- like phones away from so-called real people, and you just watch these people just like flip out at the idea of someone taking away your smartphone. You would you would have thought you just told them that the world had ended. <laughs> they right. put it through like a chip, like a wood chipper. It's it's good. I like that one. It's good. Yeah, these two guys apparently they're one of their favorite things for a long time was to sit around watching commercials and doing like a, a mystery science theater three thousand kind of thing where they would they would just sit and, and come up with, with lines and, and they started, they realized that think that there was uh, potential in there for a series, which is essentially what they've done. So, I mean, they are pretty funny. They did one making fun of the, the Chevy emoji commercial and you can imagine where that goes um, given their green screen and, and digitally enhancing the, the ads. Um, needless to say, a few uh, unexpected emojis show up in the parody. My, uh, le- well, let's listen to a little bit of Mark. Uh, interjecting on some of the the newest uh, Chevrolet ad. Okay, so I just Googled it, and it's pretty much a made-up award. Uh, Initial quality is only for like the first 90 days. In fact, Chevy has received more J.D. Power awards for initial quality than any other car company four years in a row. Wow, I'm speechless. Did you guys rent this whole building out just to show off all the cars you couldn't sell? I don't know why you guys keep inviting me. I love uh, I love this parody just because like I do always want someone to just stop and be like, wait, let's talk about these awards because <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I like that he points <laughs> out, right. wait, this is an award for ninety days of quality on a car, <laughs> like not exactly <laughs> the most thrilling thing. And, I mean, and just there the- is there is some truth in in it too. That's why people love him so much too. Is like you do kind of want to like yell at the commercials now and again, the ones that are silly. <laughs> Well, yeah. that that one, you know, they make fun at the end of this of of did you really rent out all this space just to show all these cars you didn't sell, and uh, <laughs> and it reminded me of that one. The I think this may have been one of the first ads, if not the first one, where the cars keep coming out of the floor. They're like rising on this giant pylon of of you know car platform, and part of me is like, did they build that thing just for this at one ad? <laughs> all right. So uh, um, if you know the answer to that, you should email podcast at adweek.com. 
and let us know because I'd be curious if they built that just for that one ad. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim, for uh, wrapping up all the ads worth watching. I encourage everyone, as always, to check out the creativity section of adweek.com where you'll find our ad freak blog and uh, follow Tim. He is at Nud on Twitter and always shares a lot of great stuff. Uh, we're going to move along to our digital hot list, and we have a lot to talk about. All right, so uh, those of you who are really, really devoted uh, podcast listeners might be wondering, didn't we just hear about the Adweek hot list? <laughs> Why, yes, you did. I feel like a few months ago we were just here to talk about this. We have, in 2017, we've changed the timing a bit. Uh, we used to do all of our hot lists all at once right at the end of the year. Uh, we have a print hot list, a digital hot list, uh, and another one. You can say it out loud. Oh, it's TV. <laughs> TV. <laughs> like mouthing it, TV. Yes. Blanking on what the third one is. TV. Yes, TV. <laughs> so we have spread those out a bit, uh, and this week we debuted our digital hot list. So uh, it's kind of actually, I think it was a good challenge to have just run this uh, a few months ago uh, before switching up timing because it kind of forced us to uh, look at some different players than maybe some of the most obvious ones. Uh, our content creator of the year, which I believe for 2016 was Casey Neistat. Uh, is, that, is that right, Lauren? And this year it is Lily Singh, the YouTube star. Uh, you wrote the profile of Lily Singh, uh, Lauren. So why don't you just tell us about why she was uh, our, our one of our big winners and our cover star this uh, this year. We thought she would be a good pick, number one, because of her popularity. Uh, she's kind of built up this whole franchise since 2010 um, of these positive uplifting videos while at the same time um there's a rep there was a report out that she made 7.5 million in 2016 from her from her brand which is pretty impressive she also does a lot of things offline so she's got you know a, a world tour she has a book coming out she's kind of built up this whole franchise around her personality and we thought in light of some of the backlash that's come from PewDiePie and the kind of negative uh, sentiment around YouTube stars, she's a good example of someone who, you know, a brand can kind of trust that she's not going to go totally off the rails uh, in a YouTube video that then the brand needs to be concerned about surrounding, you know, their content around that. So overall, she's, she's, a, she's an interesting um, person, and uh, we thought she had a good a good story to tell. So her positivity is something, to your point, that we kind of featured her as uh, as a nice, you know, antidote to a lot of the negativity that's online these days. Uh, Sammy, uh, you are uh, you are my personal voice of optimism every day. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, do you, do you think she was a good pick in that regard as someone who you are very committed? I should I should point out that you run a daily email of uh, mm -hmm. positive. Uh, positivity, I guess. Why don't you give us a little plug for your, your email? Sure. It's a tinyletter.com slash pep talk. And uh, recently, my dad texted me. He was like, I haven't received any Sammy emails lately. And it's because I got like a little busy. And like after the inauguration, it was like a little tough to make it daily. Um, but when I do it, it's with like a, a fun little positive quote and a, and a cute gift to go with it. Um, so I think Lily is one of the most positive people online, and that's very hard to do, especially if you're going to see 
you know, if you're engaged with your commenters or on other social media, it's really easy to get kind of sucked into what people are saying about you. But she's always been able to kind of rise above and keep smiling through everything because that's just who she is. It's not really an act with her. It's very genuine. Um, so I, I'm glad we got to share the the antidote to all of the other negative stories or negative people who are kind of also on those platforms. I, I saw a joke on Twitter recently and it's maybe not even a joke because it's like too real, but it was about, it said something like, video game uh youtubers in 2014 and it was, you know hey guys check out these funny fail videos from <laughs> skyrim and said like you youtube video gamers in 2017 minorities are destroying america <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time, times have changed <laughs> it's not as simple as it used to be but like you know d- i guess for perspective that that was a, a massive uh deal when that came out because not only were the actual brands that he worked with, obviously not happy. He also cut ties with Disney's Maker Studios. YouTube had, he, you know, his YouTube channel, I think is under more probably scrutiny now. I don't know if they've completely shut down his channel or what's happening with that. But there were a bunch of bigger discussions around it just being like, these are the marketers I work with. There's a whole, it's a whole universe around these guys that all can, can kind of come down. Yeah, and to to be specific, we were talking about PewDiePie. Uh, there, PewDiePie, obviously, um, but it, it goes beyond him too, and that's why that joke hit a little closest. That like a lot of these kind of young guys who really became these uh, almost the equivalent of like sports talk, you know, in a way. Um, but they've really gathered this angry white guy demographic, and they're kind of feeding off of it and really getting off message, I guess, or getting off topic. Uh, but uh, so yeah, it, I was. Uh, Happy, happy with our choice here of Lily saying you can definitely check out Lauren Johnson's uh, cover story on Lily uh, and uh, learn more about her. But we also have a lot of other categories in our hot list. One of those was our executive of the year, the digital executive of the year. Uh, once again, help me out. Last year it was uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I've heard of him. He's uh, a little guy. No yeah. big deal. <laughs> no, not a big <laughs> thing. Uh, but yeah, and so that kind of put a challenge on us of you know, it's not like Zuckerberg's gone away, uh, nor has Facebook's uh, influence gone down. But we uh, chose this year Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky. Uh, I know Lauren, uh, Chris Heine wrote that, or I'm sorry, Marty Swant, our, uh, your colleague on TechBeat, wrote that. Uh, he's not here today, but tell us a little bit about uh, why Brian Chesky is kind of such a major player in the digital space right now. We picked uh, Brian and Airbnb because they really have just totally transformed the the sharing economy. And now now they're really starting to. The interesting part about that is that, you know, a few years ago, the idea that you could travel somewhere and just find a place to stay anywhere in the world in, in people's houses was bizarre. Like, that's just crazy concept when you think about it. And they've really taken um written that as as much as they possibly can and now you see them trying to move into um you know just travel broadly so meaning i I think what they're trying to do is do these like package trips in other words where you stay there's still the component to the um transportation economy where you would stay in someone's house but then you also maybe go to restaurants and get to see more of like a city tour type of experience they've just really broadened it out um from from only uh, staying in like accommodation stuff, and I think Marty quoted a stat that Airbnb could be could do as much as eight eighteen billion in booking values this year, 
with 2.5 billion of that in revenue, which is pretty astonishing when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like $18 billion in, in booking should is enough that hotels should be concerned about Airbnb. I, I feel like with Airbnb, what always strikes me is that they're really only on the, on the same page with an Uber in terms of they are changing public policy. You know, cities mm-hmm. are having to rewrite their entire laws. This is a global conversation happening right now of the pros and cons of the Airbnb model. But what's different is that Uber, it's about this ride sharing idea of, of you know, kind of more amateur drivers and how that plays out. But you've got Uber, you've got Lyft, you've got, uh, you know, multiple competitors. Airbnb is just Airbnb. It's like an entire category of one. I mean, there are HomeAway and a few other things. But you know what I mean? It's like they are the brand in that category, mm-hmm. which is something even Uber hasn't been able to pull off, uh, especially lately. So very interesting choice for digital brand of the year. We did Facebook Live, uh, kind of parsing that out just a little bit uh, from Facebook. I'm going to rattle off just a few of the other uh, kind of interesting categories here. Hottest startup, uh, Talkspace. Uh, Sammy, tell us a little about Talkspace. Yeah, Talkspace is cool. Um, I tweeted the other day that I'm I'm a I'm a real fan of it, not like a fake fan of it, because I got to write the the blurb um, for for this year's digital hot list. But it's a it's a it's a therapy startup basically. Um, you sign up and you answer kind of a questionnaire as to why you're you're looking for therapy or what you're hoping to get out of it or what specifically some of your problems are and then Talkspace matches you up with a a licensed therapist um, who specializes in the areas you're interested in working on and it's um, from what I've heard it's it's cheaper than a therapist would be under a a health insurance plan or a mental health insurance plan and you get unlimited kind of text messaging. So whenever you feel like you need to reach out to somebody, you can reach out to them. They'll get back to you. You know, every therapist is different um, based on their, you know, actual workload schedule. Um, but more and more people are starting to use it. I've heard it advertised on on a whole bunch of different podcasts as well as kind of it's it's an easier way for for people who are maybe too shy or nervous to actually make an, a, a physical appointment to go see a therapist but it's still a way for them to to seek help um, with any variety of issues that that people have and I think it's pretty cool and it's super convenient and um, it's definitely useful I think it's part of you know it's a growing part of people's kind of self-care plans uh, I've, one of the hottest categories uh, that we debate every year is hottest gadget and I feel like I've realized that the recurring theme is that it's it ends up being whatever Lauren Johnson wants it to be. Has been the recurring <laughs> theme. I think last year you, you you ended up winning out over me. I think I wanted yeah. the iPhone Seven. Uh, just no, I, I fought for the Echo. Yeah, and the year. Echo won last year. The Echo won, uh, and then this year it is uh, Spectacles, uh, which you happen to own a pair of. Uh, yeah, which I also fought for. <laughs> tell me, uh, are you still using your Spectacles? I do still use them. Um, I think they are interesting because when I do use them, I get a totally different perspective on things, which I think is what was kind of lacking. Uh, well, one, one, the actual like technology and uh, design of stuff like Google Glass was never really all that amazing. But what's kind of different about spectacles is it is a totally, it gives you a different perspective. When I upload uh, a video from spectacles to Snapchat, it physically makes me turn my phone and see things how I saw them when I was recording stuff. So that's what I think is kind of interesting and different about it. I, you know, it's way, way, way too early for them to be, um, even as, you know, Snap is a super bu- buzzy company right now and just had their IPO and everything else. Definitely spectacles are not 
even remotely, like a, a Porsche, you know, not in the cards for being significant revenue driver, but they're just, they're fun. And uh, I think last year's um, marketing campaign they did around it with these fun vending machines that popped up all over the place were an interesting way to get stuff out. Then when they came to New York, obviously, I, I, yeah, I stood in line for a few hours that first day and they took off like crazy when people found out that they were available in New York and It'll be kind of interesting, interesting to see how they do because I, I do think they're different than a lot of the wearables that are out there. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd say one of the more mildly controversial choices we made this year was Hottest Digital Obsession. This is an intentionally open-ended. Uh, last year it was Pokemon Go, mm -hmm. uh, which no real debate on that one last year. <laughs> it's a pretty solid lock. Uh, but this year we went with Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Uh, Tim, how do you feel about that decision? I hate that decision. No, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, yeah, we are all a bit obsessed with it, aren't we? I mean, it, you know, the tweet comes in, and you just have to ego immediately to like to like say what he said, and you know, I mean, for better or worse, um, in, in most people's Twitter feeds, they're uh, they're fascinated by whatever he's saying. I mean, hor maybe horrified uh, occasionally. I mean, it my, is. I guess it, obsession is kind of a good word because because it doesn't imply necessarily positive uh, obsession. No, it's not necessarily. It's whether you <laughs> like it or not. It's become. And the other interesting thing about him is that there's been a lot of reports that you know what is what is his Twitter handle being for Twitter in terms of getting new users on board and signed up for the platform. But th I've seen reports where that where there hasn't been a direct correlation between the two, but because his tweets take off like crazy across the media, where you know a uh, a broadcaster will just take a screenshot of it, put it on TV. So it's it's like the the tweets take on a much broader uh, demographic than just Twitter. Like it really hasn't had that much of an incremental change on Twitter. It's more him and his personality that's that's all over media. Can, can I also give a shout out to our art our art uh, department for giving the Twitter bird uh, some some yellow hair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a fine illustration in the hot list this year. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it, I'm obsessed with the the race to be the first people to respond uh, because of the way Twitter threads comments. So again, and this isn't something you would catch if you only watch broadcast news coverage of it. But if you click through to his tweets, there are people who have, a lot of people have alerts set up to be notified the second that Trump tweets. And then they dive in with this like eight part responses. They th And just and some of them are really funny. So there's this guy who is walking across Asia. Uh, he's recreating uh, human, uh, the human spread out of Africa and across Asia and eventually to North America. And he's been working on this for several years. Uh, and he, for some reason, is obsessed with being that person. <laughs> he just jumps right in with like a seven or eight ultra sarcastic responses in a row. And I'm like, I like that this guy is sitting in Central Asia, uh, you know, in like Kyrgyzstan and is just checking in every time. I just picture him rolling out of bed and being like, all right, time to respond <laughs> to a Trump tweet. Well, that, you would have to have them, you would have to have, because they happen so quickly that that person obviously has their tweets like copy and pasted in a note in their phone where all they have to do is just copy, <laughs> paste, and hit tweet. Like, this is something you're thinking about far in advance before he actually tweets. 
Well, he's got like this, uh, that guy specifically has this very recurring thing where he just is always like, yes, this is the most important thing you could possibly be worried about right now. There is nothing more important happening than the ratings of The Apprentice. You know, So it's not exactly the hardest stuff to plan, but it is pretty good. Um, hottest video platform is one that, of course, has been a, uh, a topic of discussion a lot lately. Uh, there's all manner of definition of video platform, but this year we went with Instagram, which is only controversial in the sense that it kind of identifies that Snapchat has lost some of its standing as a mega video player. Uh, do you guys want to talk just one of you a little bit about kind of this, how we netted out on Instagram uh, being the video platform of choice for the hot list? Yeah, I think uh, some people might write it off as like it gets what Snapchat develops second, but it still has like a wider usage base and people don't want to start a whole other set of followers over on Snapchat. So people are more quickly, I think, adapting to the new tools and um, like Instagram stories specifically. And now you can do Instagram live videos. You can stream live from your account and people can get, you know, notifications from it. And there's different like swiping capabilities for, for influencers. Like all the YouTubers I follow on Instagram now are like swipe up and you can actually go see my YouTube video where you can't really link out of Snapchat at all. So I, I think it maybe gets a bad rap sometimes. Sometimes it's kind of coming in second place as far as like new ideas wise, but people are definitely um, more quickly to adapt to those new features than otherwise. Well, we are out of time. Uh, this has been a lot to cram into one episode. Uh, I definitely encourage you to drop us an email. We always love hearing from you. We are at podcast at adweek.com. And uh, definitely check out the 2017 digital hot list on Adweek. Uh, you can Google around and find that. Just make sure you're looking at the new one, the 2017. And we will be back soon with, I believe, the TV hot list is coming up next uh, in maybe a month or two. Uh, and then we'll be coming back with the magazine hot list. And at the end of this year, we are going to bring back our vote where we let people vote on what they think were the hottest of everything in 2017. Uh, we've got a few other fun packages coming up in the magazine and on the website. We've got our list of the top tech-savvy CMOs. So if you're into such things, you will love that package. We've got a, a big report on political power players, which is kind of a fun list. These are people who have kind of ribbon, risen to prominence. They are not politicians per se, so much as they are influencers, media uh, personalities who almost uh, not overnight necessarily, but very quickly became almost household names or became in, uh, influencers on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, and we've got our city spotlight on Atlanta, the marketing and brand community there coming up very soon on uh, Adweek.com. I believe that's April 10th. So uh, lots to look forward to. So keep an eye on adweek.com and keep listening to the podcast. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment to leave a review for us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Even if you just click the little number of stars, that means a lot to us and helps new listeners discover the podcast. I'm David Greiner. Thank you to Lauren Johnson. Thank you, Sammy Main. Thank you, Tim Nudd. And we will talk to everyone next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.